the Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Hello, everybody. Hey, everybody. Here we are again. Happy to be back for another episode. Yes, and we are still in the strange world of COVID, but something is changing for us. Yeah, I'm getting on an airplane tomorrow for the first time since March. It has been a really long time and a great time having you home. It has been really nice. Yeah. I think this is the longest stretch I've not been on an airplane I did take a six-month sabbatical in 2010. So maybe in 10 years. No, but I got on an airplane for a retreat that I went on. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so that, yeah. No, this is the longest stretch I've not been on an airplane in probably 23 years. Wow. Or more, 25 years? I don't know. Yeah. So I've been, yeah. It's uh, been a long time since I got on an airplane. So you're headed to do a Made for More event? Made for More in uh, Missouri. And uh, with the COVID situation, you know, the churches are allowed to have only so many people right. come out. and But we just got to get back in the saddle and get back into it and, and do it. It's, it's time. So I'm actually excited. It's been, yes. a, it's been a long while since I've been in a... I have taught some live classes, right? But I haven't been at a church doing our made for more events since March. So, yeah, yeah, I'm really excited. So I'm excited for you as well, and for the people uh, coming. I Thanks, always, love. I'm always praying for your safety and the team, and for all those the Lord is calling together for this event. Uh, hearts will be open to the Holy Spirit. It's exciting. Yeah, air travel has been such a part of my life that it. It seems weird when I when I don't do it, but now it's seeming weird that I'm doing it. <laughs> That's how long I haven't been doing it. That's right. Anyway. What else is going on with the Tubi Institute right now? Well, we have some exciting events coming up. We just launched our website recently for the Virtual Congress. Uh, if you haven't heard in previous episodes of our podcast, our Congress that was supposed to be in Cleveland this year has gone virtual because of covid and here we have the full list of speakers here. Let me just go through some of the speakers we're going to have. Uh, Bill Dunahy from the TOB Institute, Scott Hahn, Sister Miriam James, Janet Smith, Mikhail Waldstein, George Weigel, uh, yours truly, Greg Bataro, Anna Carter, Andrew Kamiski, Jason Everett, Matt Frad, Evan Lemoyne, Father Ryan Mann, uh, Michael Mangione, Colin Nakaza. Uh, Father Patrick Schultz, Jen Settle from the Institute, and a few others, actually. So we're very excited about this whole Congress, and you can learn more. You will have the, the link in the show notes, but it's tobcongress.com to learn more. They're going to be hour-long keynote addresses, live keynote Q&A sessions. There's going to be live hour-long breakout sessions, live virtual social rooms to interact with other participants, there's going to be live liturgy and prayer and holy hour. And uh, for those who register for the Congress, you'll have 24 months of access to all of the content. So that's really cool and exciting. Learn more at TOBCongress.com. And we're following up the TOB Congress this year with a online TOB 
level one class. Mm -hmm. So you can learn more about that in the show notes as well. If you've ever wanted to take the Theology of the Body level one course that we offer here in Pennsylvania, but haven't been able to travel, it's now possible to take it online. And if you're in need of scholarship funds, we have a, a link there as well uh, to learn more about scholarships. So And the dates. The of dates Congress? of, oh, did I not even say the dates? <laughs> <laughs> the dates of the Congress uh, are October 30th to November 1st. And then the TOB1 course online is the 2nd to the 13th of November. Yeah. Yeah. And I know we're starting something new with our podcast questions today. I don't know if you can explain that to our listeners. Yeah, it's a little bit different. We've been getting so many questions and we've, we're trying to group the questions into recurring themes so that we can uh, hit more broadly the, the themes that people are asking. So if you've sent in a question, uh, you know, the way we've done it in the past is we read your question and we say, hey, Rachel, or hey, Charlie, or whoever. In this new approach, we're trying to group themes together mm -hmm. because we've, we felt bad that there's so many questions that have been sent in that we're not able to address individually. So we're going to try this out and see how it goes. And hopefully a question that you have submitted, at least a theme in one of your questions, will this way be addressed. So today's first question. First question. Here we go. Can a girl ask a guy out? No. <laughs> Ooh, let me finish the question. <laughs> is there something innate about men making the first move, or is that just cultural? Okay, well, this is good. This is good. Well, Wendy, why don't you tell our story here? Go ahead. Well, this is fitting. First of all, the way this is worded, can a girl ask a guy out is sort of fundamentally, yes, it's possible i don't think that's what we're trying to get <laughs> no. at um is whether maybe more is it is it a good idea or not yeah. so i honestly i i asked christopher out she um, did I yes did you did in 1994 so no, yes you did it's a long time ago <laughs> but i was catholic young person and i had an interest in furthering our relationship seeing where it might go and so yeah i asked you out and what did i say I'll have to pray about that, which was, <laughs> I I understood because of the context of how we met each oh, other. I was okay dear. with hearing that, but I remember my roommate, actually her boyfriend said, pray, pray about, about it. it. <laughs> like that was a very strange answer to that question. That was kind of funny. Yeah. Strange for those who, who may not take that approach. Yeah. Um, the reason I said I had to pray about it was uh, Partly because I really did. I really took seriously wanting to follow God's will in my life. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was maybe the, I don't know, how did you receive it when I said that anyway? It was fine. Yeah. I prayed about it too. And actually, by the, we said we would talk again in a week to, right. to figure it out. This was, we didn't have texting and Facebook messaging and even email. So we were just talking to one another on the phone and the old fashioned way. I, yeah. We were so old fashioned. Um, so, yeah, we said we would talk again in a week. And actually, as I prayed during that week, I started to kind of get the feeling like, you know what, I, I really just want to talk with him. We can talk on the phone. We don't need to go out. So I was almost starting to feel like, I don't think this is God's timing for us, if in fact he has a Do timing Do you remember my, my initial response when you asked me oh, out? Oh, yeah. So <laughs> this really relates to the it question does. being it asked. Does. Because I, I, this is how I remember it anyway. What I remember saying is, 
I was wondering if you and I could hang out sometime. Uh-huh. Is that kind of what uh, you remember me saying? I don't, I don't know hang the exact out or words. Get together. It was, it was clear that this was an invitation from you that I had not yet had, mm-hmm. and it was clear that it was an invitation to further our relationship. Yes, it that's was, right. it was not just let's go out and have some coffee or something. It was. As in, like, we had been friends at that point for two, whatever, two and a half years or more. Mm-hmm. But we hadn't really done things just the two of us. Right. It was part of so a group. So it was clear that this was an invitation. You can say what you said. Yes. And I <laughs> I said, I said, oh, a, a woman of the 90s. <laughs> yes. And then, then the next part was. Oh, and then I said, right, I'm, fl- I'm, I'm flattered, which was. That was kind of painful to my heart because it was somebody like had, somehow in my mind that was just not the right thing for a guy to say. I'm when you flattered. I'm express sorry. Some well, interest. let me just put this in context for all our <laughs> listeners. That okay. within a year we were engaged. True. From that point, right? So we went out on our first date in March of '95, and then we were engaged just seven weeks later in May of '95. So anyway, uh, that's just a little bit of our personal history in. Responding By the to way, this question. When we talked a week later, you had discerned no, we were not. Yeah, that's why we didn't go out. And, and that's okay. Till however so many months later. Maybe we need to look at the whole dynamic of uh, a woman asking a man out or a girl asking a guy out and just kind of what is the meaning of that? And yeah. Uh, and what light does the theology of the body shine on these questions? I sure. do think. I mean, the very nature of the question, should a girl be asking a guy out, is an acknowledgement that there's a difference. Mm-hmm. And and we have to avo- avoid exaggerating the differences, but we also have to avoid uh, ignoring the differences. And the way I I usually point these themes out when they come up in a class or when I'm uh, giving a presentation at a parish or something like that, is I'll say, okay, uh, like I, I'll make fun of the scene in uh, Back to the Future when when Marty's mom says, when I was a girl, girls didn't call boys on the phone, you know? <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with a, a girl calling a boy on the phone or texting or whatever, communication. whatever communication is happening mm-hmm. in these days and how that communication is happening. Um, and there's nothing wrong in the marital context with a wife initiating lovemaking, right? In terms of who's going to initiate. If we're gonna talk about themes of of the male and the female, if you look at the theology of a man's body, he's the one who gives the seed. This is not arbitrary. This, this says something about the masculine reality. The woman is the one who opens to receive that gift. Uh, there's, that says something about the feminine reality. John Paul II makes the key point, however, that in giving the gift, he also receives the gift of the woman, and receiving the gift of the man, the woman also makes the gift of herself. So he says there's a giving and there's an interpenetration, he says, of the giving and receiving. So I think that's a great way to acknowledge the difference without exaggerating the difference. So in that recognition, uh, just as I said, there's nothing wrong with the wife initiating lovemaking. There's no husband on the planet, I think, would would have a problem with that. But I would say there's something in the way a man is wired and the way a woman is wired that I don't believe it's just cultural conditioning, for example, 
that men proposed marriage to women. And I think in 25 years of doing this work, when I've asked this question of women, I think there might have been only one or two objections, you know, and this is like hundreds of thousands of women over the years, when I've said, and women, don't you prefer also that a man would propose marriage to you? Overwhelmingly, like 99.8% mm -hmm. of, of female responses to that question is, a, is an overwhelming, yes, that's the way I want it to be. So I think it says something about the way we're wired. Uh, I wouldn't go so far as to say, therefore, uh, a woman should never take some kind of initiative in a relationship, not at all, nor should a man feel threatened by that. My overall answer is recognize the, f the difference between men and women without exaggerating it. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts, Wendy? I'm sort of feeling like this might have been a question asked by a woman or a girl mm -hmm. uh, who's kind of feeling unsure about whether to let her feelings be known right so i can certainly speak to some experience of having let my feelings be known um you're obviously taking a, a risk and um i think that's always a little bit of a challenge but i also feel like you know there's something beautiful about the complementarity of men and women and the deepening of a friendship um doesn't always mean something more than a deepening of a friendship. And it's okay for either person to take the step to deepen the friendship and see what comes of that. So in kind of a, you know, just a simple way, maybe it's because of my background, but I certainly don't think there should be some kind of rule against, um, you know, women expressing themselves to men, you know, that kind of notion that you should just wait around and yeah. hope seems sort of powerless and a little sad like, yeah. I don't and i think i would agree that that's that's probably an exaggeration of yeah. the difference it's it's acknowledging a difference that is real but i think it's an exaggerated application mm -hmm. of the difference to say therefore women should never right. express their feelings or yeah. and yeah I, I i think maybe we'd leave it at that that's yeah that's good yeah, I hope that's helpful to those who have been wondering about that. Mm -hmm. Second question. Should a Catholic have sex outside of marriage? Please explain the church's teaching on this. Well, I would want to expand that and say, should anyone? <laughs> Why just limit it to Catholics? If it's true, mm. it's true. So in order to answer that question, we have to really look at what is sex supposed to be saying? Mm-hmm. What is the human heart looking for when it's desiring sexual union? And I want to say this at, at the deepest level, what is the human heart looking for? Because there's, you know, there's a cursory, surfacy desire just for pleasure, uh, which comes from a part of our hearts that I think we can recognize is not the most noble. And if we act on that, we end up treating other human beings as objects for our pleasure. And anybody and everybody knows, if they're being honest with themselves, that when somebody uses us as a means to an end, it violates our dignity. We don't feel loved, we feel used. And as John Paul II says, the opposite of love is not so much hatred. This is not a direct quote, but a 
paraphrasing of his teaching. The opposite of love is not so much hatred. The opposite of love is to treat another person as an object of use. Mm. I remember learning that for the first time when I was reading Love and Responsibility in the, in the early 90s. And I was like, oh my gosh, that explains so much pain in my life. That explains so much pain I've experienced and explains so much pain I've caused other people. And the, the hope is that, and this is also what I learned from John Paul II, there's another way to see. We have this very usorial attitude in our culture when it comes to, to sex. Uh, it's about me and my pleasure, and when I feel that drive and desire, I should indulge it. Uh, well, if, if you are not in control of your desires, then inevitably you're going to seek to control others to gratify those desires. And controlling other people to gratify your desires is not loving another person. It's using another person. You remember, Wendy, when, when we were dating and uh, we were at Holtwood Pinnacle? It was 1995. It was a beautiful spring day. And I was holding you in my arms on this beautiful pinnacle overlooking the Susquehanna River here in Pennsylvania. And I had this uh, uh, flashback to the way I used to operate when I was with a woman and I just knew how to manipulate her to push her buttons to get what I wanted. And, and I shuddered. I just like, Ugh! and you said, what, what, what? I said, Wendy, Wendy, I have no desire whatsoever to push your buttons. I don't want to just use you to get something out of you. And you were delighted about that, of course. And so was I. And I felt so free. Mm -hmm. Why am I sharing all this? Because there's a difference between sexual freedom and sexual license. Our culture talks a big line about sexual freedom, but what it really means by that is sexual license. Do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want, yeah. without ever saying instincts. no. Follow your instincts. Yeah. And here's the thing. Our instincts, if we follow them as they are, as we experience them, we will end up using people, not loving people. Mm -hmm. Sexual freedom, in the authentic sense, is not the liberty to indulge your compulsions. It's liberation from the compulsion to indulge. Only such a person can be a gift. Mm -hmm. And that's what we desire. That's the language of the body in sexual union. It's this is my body given up for you. Right. Uh, should Catholics be having sex before they're married? Should anybody be using another person? That's the question. That's the underlying question in the question. Yeah. What is the difference between loving someone and using someone? And when we talk about sex in the context of marriage, we still haven't arrived at the right language or the right understanding because it's very possible for spouses to be using one another rather than loving one another. It's not just the fact that you're married that suddenly there's this magic trick, a snap of the finger that enables you to be this sincere gift to another person. So it's not merely the marriage certificate that makes sex acceptable. It's what does it mean to love the person rather than use the person? And if we're honest with ourselves, if we look at the deepest desires of our hearts, not just the base desire to, to get pleasure, but if we look at the deepest desire of our hearts to be loved as we are unconditionally, seen, known, acknowledged, honored, respected, 
cherished, seen as unrepeatable, seen as indispensable, seen as irreplaceable. This is what the heart longs for. This is what the heart needs, if we're honest. And you and I, we've talked about this before on this podcast, that when you're in touch with that knowledge of what you really desire to love and be loved, and when you are in touch with how vulnerable sexual relations make you, you know you can't be that vulnerable unless the other person has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. That's what the marriage commitment is. Sexual union is meant to be an expression and renewal of the marriage commitment itself, which is the commitment to another person. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Good times, bad, sickness, health, come what may. Mm -hmm. Our destinies are intertwined. That's how valuable you are to me, Wendy. To say to you, our destinies are intertwined. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Uh, What the church is saying here to the whole world, not just the Catholics, but to the whole world, is don't settle for less than what your dignity demands. And your dignity demands that you be loved forever, uh, not used and then discarded. You are not a thing. You are not something to use and then and consume and then discard. You are someone, and someone is meant to be seen, known, loved, cherished, to the point that when you see the true dignity of the person, love says, I want I want to honor that true dignity. And sexual love says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And that kind of love, that kind of commitment is called marriage. Yeah, I appreciate so much all that you're saying. In this question is contained other questions, kind of what is marriage? And that's part of what you're answering. And then what is the link between sexual union and marriage? Is marriage just a decision to, well, from this point on, this is my only sexual partner, maybe, if we want that kind of marriage. You know, in the culture, there's right. so many different ideas So many ideas things going on in the culture, right. And that are really contrary to what you said about our dignity and our nature and our deep heart longings. Um, and I, many people are probably pretty cynical, like, well, nobody's going to find that. So you just have yeah. to settle. Yep. You have to compromise. You get very hardened. You enter into... Um, various sexual experiences with sort of walls around your heart that you're, you know, but that's a struggle. That's such a struggle to maintain that wall when imprinted by God in our sexual capacity is this vulnerability, this commitment, this possibility of new life and the need for both parents to be that gift to their children. That's a key point, Wendy. This (laughs) this question of fertility, we have so erased it even from consciousness in the modern world because we're looking at the world through condom-colored glasses, as I often say. And when you're looking through the world with condom-colored glasses, what does sex get reduced to? Pleasure. The exchange of pleasure. Two consenting people who want to express pleasure. If that's all that sex is, well, okay, go ahead. Do it with anybody you want. 
If it's just mm. two cons people consenting to pleasure, and why does it have to be two? Why does it have to be the opposite sex? If it's just about pleasure, go get your pleasure wherever you want. Right. But if you're reading, see, this is the message. Our bodies tell a story. Our bodies, in fact, tell the most glorious, the most grand, the most beautiful story. The problem is, as Jesus says, we look, but we do not see, right? In the modern world, the meaning of the body has become invisible. Yeah. Uh, in, in the modern world, why has it become invisible in the modern world? Because we're wearing these condom-colored glasses. What are you erasing when you're wearing condom-colored glasses? You're erasing fertility from the sexual equation. And when you, re when you erase fertility from the sexual equation, you no longer see that genitals are meant to generate right and when you when you keep that question of fertility in the equation keep that reality that sexual intercourse leads to babies keep the reality together that a woman's body that receives a man's body that's the birth canal mm -hmm. right that the gift that you're giving of your seed is meant to reach the egg and it's meant to in the wonderful design of god it's meant to bring new life into the world we, we could summarize it like this marriage sex and babies go together and in that order mm -hmm. right when you when you keep that fertility as part of the the vision of what sex is everything the catholic church teaches about sex makes sense keep babies part of it keep fertility part of it who then should be having sex only those people who have committed to embrace responsibly the fruit of their union mm. that commitment is called marriage remove fertility from that equation which is what contraception does and sex gets thrown back on itself genitals are no longer for generating the next generation genitals are just for generating my own personal pleasure and then i start looking at the world as where can i get my sexual pleasure and then people are seen not as persons they're seen as things right. for my pleasure and i'll stay with you as long as you bring me pleasure but when you no longer bring me pleasure i'll get rid of you and i'll go find somebody else who can give me pleasure this is the world we live in right now Mm -hmm. a, a consumerist world where we treat other people as things. Everything the Catholic Church is saying is you are made for love, right. not for use. Uh, listen to your heart. Listen to your deepest desires. I, I, I love what you said, Wendy, so realistic about how cynical we get because we're wounded. And I remember when I was in eighth grade and this girl made out with me, and I found out she made out with me only because she wanted to have a story to tell her friends. And I felt used. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm going to just harden my heart that hurt, that really hurt me. I'm going to harden my heart. And I'm, if this is the game, I'm just going to play the game. And I did that for another several years and hurt myself and hurt a lot of other people. And there I was in my pain in my late teens and early 20s, crying out, God, there's got to be another way. Uh, if you're out there hearing me say this and you're feeling that pain, yeah, there's another way. There's another way. Uh, it takes a lot of rearranging of the interior furniture, so to speak, of our hearts <laughs> to learn really what it means to love. And, and we never finish that journey in this life. Mm -hmm. But you're worth it. That's what I want to tell the world. You're mm -hmm. worth it. You're worth it. You are worth it. Yeah. I, I just have this sort of image in my mind of of kind of a 
a, a barrier sign on a heart, you know, like when some place is under construction and it's like, keep out, mm -hmm. you know, yep. and like this, what you're holding out is like saying, first of all, to the Lord, like take down that keep out sign that you had to put up and just say, like, I'm open. And that's just the first step toward being ready to be truly a gift in marriage and yes. to have that open heart in, yes. in sexual intercourse and in that beautiful relationship with marriage. Our next question, um, our listener says, I really enjoy your podcast. It's a blessing. I've learned a lot and I'm growing closer to God. So glad. I have a question. A priest at the altar by God's power turns the bread and wine into the body and blood of our Lord. As married couples, what powers are we granted oh, by God I in like the sacrament of matrimony? Woo! I know we are co-creators, but I know there's more. What is this? Wow, what a great question. Love it. Uh, I'm, I'm reminded of a homily John Paul II gave, I believe in the 80s, in which he said, in making a comparison between the Eucharist and the marriage bed, mm. that there is something similar. There's an analogy here. The analogy comes right out of the scriptures. It's Ephesians 5, where St. Paul says the one flesh union of husband and wife is a great mystery, and it refers to Christ and the church, right? So there is this biblical analogy between the union of man and woman and the union of Christ and the church. The union of man and woman is consummated on the marriage bed, right? The union of Christ and church and the church is consummated on the altar. John Paul II in his Theology of the Body says that conjugal union is in some way liturgical. Mm. And he says also that the liturgy is in some way based on the mystery of conjugal union. So there's this beautiful analogy between the two. And I often tell the story of your father. Maybe I'll let you tell it since yeah. you're here. Can you tell that story? Sure. Yeah. Uh, just my dad, um, my parents were married in 1966. Uh, and they um, were married on a Saturday and consummated their marriage and the next day went to Sunday morning mass. And um, my mother was the one who told me this story years later that um, after communion, she saw that my dad was crying quietly and she asked him what, what caused him to be crying. And he said, it, for the first time, I understood those words. This is my body given up for you. Mm. And was saying because he had given up his body for his bride in their marriage. And uh, that was such a powerful story to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It really captured my heart just to think of that depth and holiness of and meaning of love in, in the marital embrace. Really worth, worth every sacrifice to receive that. I never got to meet your dad, as you know, but our listeners may not know that he died when you were a girl. I've always admired him for that story. I'm so grateful for that story and how that that made an impression in your yeah, heart. Yeah, it really did. Um, but but back to this question, I, I, that that plays right into what I wanted to say. That there's this beautiful analogy between the Eucharist and the marital embrace. Uh, in the Eucharist, as John Paul II says, the bridegroom gives up his body for the bride. 
So, so the question was, what's this connection? The priest has the special power to turn mm-hmm. the body, the bread and wine into the body and blood of Jesus. Well, every sacrament has, this is a fancy word, I'll explain it. Every sacrament has the epiclesis, mm. which is the calling of the Holy Spirit uh, upon the physical world so that the physical reality becomes more than just that physical reality. It gets permeated and penetrated by the divine. Well, there is an epiclesis that happens in the sacrament of marriage. Every sacrament has an epiclesis, a calling of the Holy Spirit, where the the physical reality uh, encounters the divine reality. And right in the marital embrace, so long as, and this is a key point, we were talking about this in the other question, contraception uh, you'll remember this, Wendy. Years ago, we were given a talk, mm-hmm. and it's 25, 24 years ago, and I was making the connection between the Holy Trinity, uh, the Holy Spirit uh, coming forth from the love of the Trinity, and the, the child comes forth from the love of husband and wife, and a woman raised her hand, and she said, well, what if I want to have sex with my husband, but we don't want the Holy Spirit there? And I've used that line in so many of my talks over the years because this woman, without even realizing it, summarized so powerfully precisely why the church recognizes the horror of contraception. And that's what it is. It is a horror. When you know what the marital embrace really is meant to be, to render it sterile is to say, I don't want the Holy Spirit to be part of this act. Who's the Holy Spirit? The Lord and the giver of life. Mm-hmm. To render sexual union sterile is to kick the Holy Spirit out of that union. Who is the Holy Spirit? Not just the Lord and giver of life. The Holy Spirit, as the Lord and giver of life, is the very love of God. Mm-hmm. When we are kicking the Holy Spirit out of the sexual relationship, we're kicking love out of the sexual relationship. Mm-hmm. So this is the state of affairs in a world that contracepts. There's, there's a barrier between us and the epiclesis, if you will. It becomes a kind of anti-epiclesis. Imagine the priest praying over the gifts on the altar. Let the Holy Spirit not come upon these gifts because I don't want them to be made holy. Mm. If we can feel and sense the horror of that, then we can feel and sense the horror of, of what contraception does to the marital relationship. Um, this is not said to assign blame. This is not said to assign culpability, right? What does Jesus say from the cross? Forgive them, Father. They know not what they're doing. Most people simply don't know what they're doing when they contracept. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's any less damaging. If I, if I drink a, a glass of poison and I don't know it's poison, I'm not guilty of committing suicide, but it's still going to kill me. It's still going to have its effect, even though I'm not culpable for my own death in that situation. Similarly, I, I, I don't think most people are culpable who are contracepting because they've never been educated. They've never heard this beautiful good news. And what is the good news? The good news is this, the power that we have as a married couple in our sacrament is not only to be co-creators with God in the marital embrace, which is very obvious at the natural level, our five children would not exist if you and I had not come together in the sacrament of marriage, we have become co-creators with God. But John Paul II says this over and over again in the theology of the body. 
we also become, in a sense, we become co-redeemers. Because true spousal love, he says, is not just a creative love, it's a redeeming love. Yeah. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit in the sacrament of marriage. I have a feeling that that's what our questioner was kind of sensing yeah. is there yeah. and saying, what's the word for this? Yeah. Or what is this power? I love the way you just described it. Do you want to say more no, about I, I, being co-redeemers? I mean, I, I can say more, but I see that you want to say something and I well, want you to say yeah, it. Yeah, I feel it. I feel yeah, that, I can tell you that, that sense in which... Um, if we talk about growing in our relationship with the Lord and, and, and encountering him in communion and God's will for us as Christians to repeatedly, you know, nurture that relationship and that transformative grace that comes to us through that. Similarly, when we are embracing the sacrament of marriage, we're embracing the working of grace through our relationship, which is a profound call in a very particular way to lay down our lives yes. for another, to draw nearer to the Lord and to his revelation of what it means. Why am I on this earth? That call to deeply love our spouse is life-giving, it's redeeming, it gives meaning and purpose yes. to all of our human struggles. So are there couples that don't actually, you know, have children, couples who struggle with infertility or even right. are married past the years of, of fertility, does that take away a power of no, their marriage? No. The marriage bond is God's working in our hearts. I remember being so struck looking at the prayers at the sacrament of marriage. Let the Holy Spirit be the bond yes that which keeps us together it's not date nights right. you know it's not watching the same tv show it's the holy spirit it's a person of the trinity that is our bond is and our, is ooh, continually at work through our relationship it's pretty darn important it's and, and <laughs> you brought up a very important point because when i talk so directly about the damaging effects of contraception etc mm -hmm. uh, and the importance of fertility there can be a misunderstanding that um, you said the, the couple past childbearing years or even a younger couple that are unable to have children yeah. by, by no, you know, no fault of their own. So long as we are not rendering the act sterile, the Holy Spirit is part of that act. So long as we're not kicking them out, he's part of the act. That's the best way to put it. So long as we are not kicking the Holy Spirit out of the act, he is part of that act. And when the Holy Spirit is part of any human act, there is always a redeeming power to it, mm -hmm. a life-givingness that is beyond what the eye can see, but the heart experiences it. And you and I have experienced this. Mm -hmm. I can say without a doubt that your love has been redeeming in my life. Your love for me Mm -hmm. has saved me from so many lies. Right, and yours for me. And that's that's a real power that is given us in the sacrament of marriage. Mm -hmm. I hope that's so encouraging to our listeners yeah. to maybe just take a moment, and if you are married, just look at what is the Holy Spirit doing in your marriage right now? Your marriage doesn't need to be just like our marriage for the Holy Spirit to be there, but 
but ask the Lord to open your eyes so that you can see he's at work and you can choose to cooperate with that and follow where he's leading in that redemption that he's working in your marriage. I'll add only this one other point that I think is very important, lest we get the wrong picture. How does redemptive love happen? It happens through the sacrifice of the cross. And that means the love that is really redeeming, the love that really saves and heals, you're going to feel the crown of thorns getting pressed in at times. You're going to feel the nails getting driven through your hands at times. You're going to feel that sword getting thrust right into your side. It's, it's, uh, I was about to say having a holy marriage does not mean having a rosy marriage, but if you take the real image of roses and recognize that there are thorns involved, get a complete picture of a rose, and then you can talk about a rosy marriage yeah. in the right sense. It involves those thorns. If you're going through that right now in your marriage with thorns and, and nails and lances getting thrust through your heart, know that you are entering into this mystery of becoming a co-redeemer with Christ for the one that you love. Keep going, keep going. It doesn't end there in thorns and swords and nails. It ends in glory. It ends in resurrection. Keep going. Amen. And remember, as always, you guys are a gift, indispensable, irreplaceable, and unrepeatable. Become what you are. Ask Christopher West is brought to you by the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione. Christopher and Wendy hope that the information provided is helpful to you, but remind you that they're not licensed counselors. If you're going through serious difficulty, a list of trusted counselors and psychologists can be found in the show notes. Thank you.